because of their lack of faith. So for our note takers, that's, that main idea will serve as our outline for our sermon. So first, a promise, the righteous shall live by faith. We'll see this in verses 2 to 5. A promise, the righteous shall live by faith, 2 to 5. And then second, a warning, the wicked should live in fear, verses 6 to 20. The wicked should live in fear, 6 to 20. So where did we leave off last week? Habakkuk was in this watchtower. He was looking to see how God would answer his complaint. And he was watching and waiting for God to respond. So let's pick up in our, our text, in our passage, in Habakkuk 2, starting in verse 2. If you are using the Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 785. Habakkuk 2, starting in verse 2. Again, page 785. And if you do not have a Bible of your own, as always, we invite you to take this home with you and take the opportunity to read from God's Word and learn what it is God has to say in it. So picking up in Habakkuk 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol? 
when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it, at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Well, in verses 2 through 5, I want us to consider the promise, the righteous shall live by faith. A brief comment about this phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, it has implications for both the future and for the present. In the future, the righteous will live forever with God because of their faith in God. And in the present, the righteous live by faith in God now. So in short, the righteous shall live forever with God, but that begins now by faith. So there's an immediate component to the righteous living by faith that has immediate consequences and implications. So as we think about the righteous living by faith, we'll have the future in mind, but I also want to give special attention to the present implications of living by faith. So looking at verses 2 to 5, the Lord's call to Habakkuk and to Judah and all the righteous people of faith is to lead a life unashamed of God, we'll see that in verses 2 to 4, and unafraid of man in verse 5. So those will serve as two subpoints under the righteous shall live by faith. So first subpoint, the righteous live unashamed of God, verses 2 to 4. Let's look for a moment at verse 2. In verse 2, the Lord answers Habakkuk and says to him, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Uh, That would have been probably an appropriate prayer for me this week as I labor over looking at the passage saying, Lord, would you just make clear what it is you have for me to say? Well, I trust he's guided me, but he very explicitly gave Habakkuk the very words written here for you and I to hear and to learn from. Habakkuk has looked to the Lord and the Lord instructs him and then He writes down all of God's words for all to see and to hear. And he makes it plain and clear. So Habakkuk is unashamed here of God's message. He is writing it in tablets of stone as a permanent record. And as one that he will then confidently take and share with others. Uh, It's a warning that he will confidently bring of certain judgment. And then in verse 3, he, he waits. This word of the Lord is still future. The Lord will bring justice at his appointed time. And Habakkuk is unashamed to wait on God's timing. He knows that God does not lie. He knows that God will not delay. He does not fear as though someone or something has delayed God. Rather, he is confident that God will keep his word and carry out his purposes in his time. So I wonder, what about you, Christian? Do you share Habakkuk's confidence? Do you wait upon God with confidence? Now, he was honestly wrestling with God, but he was waiting expectantly to hear from God. 
Do we wait to hear from God expectantly? Or do we grow timid as we wait? So at the time that Habakkuk received this vision, yes, he needed to wait. The vision would not be fulfilled immediately. But why is it that he was able to wait? I believe he was able to wait because Habakkuk knew God's nature and God's character. Because it is like the Lord to wait. Is it not? It is like the Lord to wait. So we've seen this title, the Lord. It was the Lord that answered him. And we've seen this title before, even last week and previous sermons. It's a title that God gives to himself to describe his nature and his character. As a personal God, a God who is near, who identifies with his people, and who enters into relationship with his people, a people he is committed to. And God famously uses this title when he writes his law a second time in Exodus 34 on new tablets of stone, where he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who will by no means clear the guilty. So Habakkuk knew the, the nature and the character of God, that he was merciful and gracious, and he also knew God to be faithful. God would not clear the guilty. God is not slow because he is powerless to execute justice. He is slow because he is steadfast in his love. He is slow because he is merciful and gracious. But let's not misunderstand his slowness. He is faithful. It says there in verse 3, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The Apostle Paul in, excuse me, Peter in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, gives us a similar reminder, a similar encouragement. He says this, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So I wonder if you have considered God's slowness towards you. Let me speak specifically to the non-Christian first. Have you considered God's slowness towards you? And what do you make of it? Could it be that the Lord is being merciful and gracious to you? As we've said, it's not his lack of power that contributes to his slowness, but it is his abundance of patience. But the scriptures make clear that his patience will run out, that time will run out, and that the time to respond in repentance and faith is now while he can be found. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So non-Christian, let me plead with you this morning to turn to Christ, that he may have compassion upon you. God tells us that he is a good God, and he is holy and just in all his ways, and he has made you to be in relationship with him. He has made you to love him and to follow him. And yet the scriptures tell us that all of us have rejected God's love 
and his rule. That each one of us has sinned against God. And because God is good and he is just and is holy, he must judge sin, which deserves death. But God, in his love for sinners, sent his son Jesus to die in the place of sinners. Jesus lived this life of full obedience and devotion to the Father and died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. Three days later, he rose from the dead as a testimony of God's wrath being satisfied, God's wrath towards sin being satisfied through the death of his son. And then he rose from the dead as a testament of his power, God's power over death and sin. This is the message of the gospel. This is the way in which you can have eternal life with God. And there's a call to repent of your sin and to trust in Christ for salvation. All who turn, they will be saved. By faith, the righteous shall live. This is the good news that is for you, that you can, by faith, have access to salvation and by faith brought near to Jesus. And by faith, you can live forever. Well, what about you, speaking now specifically to the Christian? Have you considered God's slowness to you? And what do you make of that? Where, perhaps, is the Lord calling you towards repentance towards him? To turn to him that you may be reconciled and restored in your relationship with him and with others. Or where is the Lord calling you to wait upon him, to trust him, that your relationship with him may be strengthened as you continue to live by faith? Verse 4 tells us that the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk believes this. Even as he wrestles with his theological questions before God, he trusts God. He believes God. He knows God to be God. And he's not ashamed to call God God. Ultimately, Habakkuk is unashamed to live by faith, and he is unashamed of God's salvation plan, which has always been by faith. Hebrews 11 cites the men and women of the Old Testament who lived by faith, and there we see that faith has always been commended and counted as righteousness. So I wonder for you, as Habakkuk was unashamed of God's redemptive plan, what are your thoughts about God's salvation plan? Are there ways in which you are ashamed of the gospel amongst peers or amongst family, amongst coworkers, amongst neighbors? And how can you live unashamed? Who can you bring alongside you to help you live unashamed of the gospel? I, I believe that you're doing that this very morning by gathering with other believers to be strengthened and unashamed of the gospel that you and we might live by faith. So point number two, the righteous live unafraid of man. So the contrast we see in verse four is the righteous live by faith in God, but the wicked live by a faith that is in themselves. That is in their own strength. The wicked are described here as the one whose soul is puffed up and it is not upright within him. And then in verse 5, the description of the wicked continues. 
This is speaking specifically of the Babylonians. They're given to much drink. They are arrogant. They are never at rest. They are greedy. They are takers of what is not their own. And as we read this description, we know these to be a dangerous people, a people who strike fear in others, and a people of whom there is much to be afraid. Yeah, I think the call by faith, indeed because of our faith, is that the righteous ultimately will not be afraid of man. The righteous live unafraid of the power of man because the most powerful man is subject to the power of God. The righteous live unafraid of the plans of man because even the most wicked plans of man are subject to the sovereign and good plans of God. The righteous will live unafraid of the success of man because the success of man will not outlast or overwhelm the success of God. The righteous will live unafraid of the resources of man because the resources of man are limited, but the resources of God are without limit. Because man is subject to God in every way, ultimately, the righteous who by faith follow God will live unafraid of man. Now, of course, there are aspects of our relationships with others in which we do experience fear. So let me just camp out there for a moment. What about man makes you most afraid? And does faith in God help in any way? Judah had, had real reason to fear the Babylonians. Many nations did because of what they had done. Man gives us real reason to fear. But the call in Scripture is that faith in God gives us greater reason not to fear. Once again, because man is subject to God. And because man is subject to God, what is it that man can do to you? The Gospels pick up this theme in, in Luke 12, 4, reads, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. Real reason to fear. And yet, greater reason not to fear, because the soul of those who trust in Christ is preserved and will last forever. Matthew 10, 28 and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so that's the warning. God's judgment on the wicked will come, and it will not delay. And because of this, the wicked have real reason to fear. So in our remaining verses, I'd like us to consider second a warning in verses 6 to 20. The wicked should live in fear. Verses 6 to 20, a warning. The wicked should live in fear. In this section, if you had a chance to look at it, or even just in listening to the reading of these verses, there's actually five warnings. 
There's five woes to Babylon for their wickedness. And the Lord's warning to Babylon is a warning specific to them, but it's also a warning to future oppressive nations and a warning to all people who remain in wickedness. And the warning is, is, is this. Because you lack faith in God, you will be afraid of both man and God and ashamed before man and God. So just as we had two subpoints in, in our first uh, promise, we'll have two subpoints here in our warning. First, that because of your lack of faith, here it is, you will be afraid, the wicked will be afraid of God, of man and God. Once more, the wicked will be afraid of man and God. That's verses 6 to 14. And the wicked will be ashamed before God, man and God. Verses 15 to 20. So first, subpoint one, the wicked will be afraid of man and God. We've mentioned Babylon, ha, Babylon has good reason. Uh, th- those who were in, in the way of Babylon had good reason to fear. Well, actually, Babylon as well has good reason for fear. Um, Babylon has committed grave injustice to nation after nation. And now all these people, mentioned in verse 5, they serve as a lasting record and witness against the Babylonians. And then verse 6. Let's read 6 together. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, then verse 6, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. And 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. All these things that, that Babylon had prided themselves in will now be humbled. They'll be humbled by. All these things that they had counted as gain will now count against them. The tables will be turned. It says, your debtors will awake and arise. In these series of verses, we see those you have taken from will now take from you. Those you have made to tremble will now make you tremble. Those you have spoiled will now be spoil, you will be spoil for them. Those you, Babylon, have plundered will now plunder you. Those you have treated violently will now treat you violently. Those you have cut off will now cut you off. You have forfeited your life, the Lord says. Babylon's own history, their past testifies against them. They have heaped up all this judgment. They've accumulated all these things for gain. For how long? For a lasting judgment. And all these things that they have accumulated for how long? They're only a temporary ownership. Well, as history testifies against Babylon, history as it unfolds will testify of God. Looking at verses 13 and 14. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So while Babylon had great reason to fear man, had greater reason to fear God. This coming judgment from the hands of other nations actually ultimately, is it not from the Lord of hosts, it says there? 
Will he not reduce them to fire and to rubble? The glory that has been due to God all along, they have stolen from him, and he will take it back. And he will expose them, and his glory now will fill the earth. An exchange of the glory of man, they're building up the nation, the overcoming and, and conquering other nations, their glory now will be replaced with shame. Because God takes his own glory seriously. He's identified with his people. And he will ensure that he receives glory in the end. This is where history is headed. So this is what would unfold later after this vision, which has happened and which we have recorded here. But also this is where future still before us, you and I today, is heading, is going. We understand that Christ is coming again. And when he comes, he will come in full glory. And his glory will be on full display and it will be plain for all to see. So I wonder, does God's glory excite you? As you look to that day, does God's glory excite you? If it doesn't excite you, is there some aspect of God's glory that you are trying to steal for yourself? Some self-glory that should be given to God. And if you are excited about the glory of God, does your life testify to this? I trust it does. If you're excited about the glory of God, you will spend your life for God's glory. So let us encourage one another in spending our lives for God's glory. And then subpoint two, the wicked will be ashamed before man and before God. This is verses 15 to 20. So Babylon's, specifically Babylon, their wickedness will bring it shame before man. Verses 15, picking up there. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. In these verses, we see that, that Babylon, who was in the business of, of exposing others and taking advantage of others, will then be exposed. They were about shaming others, and now they will have their fill of shame. That was true for the Babylonians. It's true for the wicked as well. The wicked and their sin will eventually be found out. The wicked will eventually have to answer for their sin, which will be exposed. And so as we read of God's dealing with the Babylonians here, we hear a warning to humble ourselves before God that we might bring him glory or else we will be humbled by him and shame will be brought upon us. Well, Babylonians, the Babylon's wickedness brings with it not just shame before man, but before God. Verse 16, the second half, it says the cup of the Lord's right hand will come upon you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. This is directly from the hand of God. From his hand comes this cup of wrath 
this cup of judgment. And we are reminded of the fact that Christ drank the cup of God's wrath on behalf of those who humble themselves and place their faith in Christ. Finally, I want us to notice that Babylon's idolatry heaps on further the shame. So Habakkuk, who is writing this vision from God on stone tablets, brings to mind Moses when he had written God's law on stone tablets. And the first two commandments to love the Lord your God, to have no other gods before him, and to make no other carved image in the form of God. Well, this is directly the way that Babylon sinned against God. It was to their shame that they worshipped other gods. Paul in Romans tells us that creation testifies to the divine nature and the eternal power of God so that man is without excuse. And yet, Babylon has devoted themselves to idol worship. These images that are mortal, these things that never have lived, these things that have never spoken, they have given their lives to worship. Almost in a rhetorical way, Habakkuk continues in verse 18, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he speaks, when he makes speechless idols. And here's the last warning, the last woe. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. So Babylon's idolatry heaps further shame upon them, further shame before God. In closing, I want to pick up on the question, what can we learn, what can they teach, what can we learn from idols? There it is in verse 19, can this teach, can this teach? And I think there's maybe one thing that we can learn, that we can see and observe from the idols, and that is their silence. We don't, we don't need to learn this from the idols, but that is one thing they are actually instructing us in, is, is silence. As the idols are, are silent, so are we to be before God. When we come into his presence, we are to be silent and come with reverence and ready to hear from him. The last verse, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. That was true then, that was true in the future, that's true now and will continue to be true. The Lord is in his holy temple, so let all the earth keep silent before him. We typically in our service have a built-in time to prepare ourselves in silence for worship. In a few moments, at the end of the service, we'll have a time to silently reflect on the things that we have heard. 
and what is it that we have heard. As we have listened in to Habakkuk's conversation, what did you hear and what did you learn? Well, we learned of a promise, a promise that the righteous shall live by faith, as well as a warning, a warning for the wicked that without faith they have reason to live in fear. So with both this promise and this warning in mind, may it spur us on, the people of God, to love God and to continue together in faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith. We understand that faith comes from you. And Father, we pray that as we hear from your word, that we would come to faith, that we would grow in faith. And Father, as we live by faith, we pray that we would live lives that are pleasing to you, that bring you honor and you glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.